Hey, Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette, and you're listening to Hey, Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. First, I want to make sure my listeners know about this Saturday's Hayden Pedago concert, which is being sponsored by my magazine, Brick and Elm. I interviewed Hayden several years ago for my first podcast live show. That was after his attention-getting city council run, which was unsuccessful, uh, and that's a whole story. But his career as a musician has grown enormously since then. Hayden opened for Jenny Lewis this summer. He's going on tour with her again next year. Uh, He did an NPR Tiny Desk concert, which was really fun. His recent album has been named to several top albums of the year list. He's touring Europe next year. His career is going places, and he's still such a good Amarillo guy, and this hometown concert is really exciting. So if you're a Hey Amarillo listener, I really hope to see you this Saturday, December 23rd at An Evening with Hayden Pedigo. It's presented by Brick and Elm at the Globe News Center for the Performing Arts. Tickets are just $15. I don't know the last concert at the Globe News Center that I've ever been to, actually, that cost only $15. So this will be a fun night of soothing guitar music, storytelling, and a lot more. Get tickets at panhandletickets.com. That's this Saturday night, panhandletickets.com. And as part of this podcast partnership with Brick and Elm Magazine, I want to give a podcast shout out to Center City of Amarillo, to Mission 2540, to Amarillo Botanical Gardens, to From Sixth Collective, and to Schlegels. You can read the free e-edition of Brick and Elm at brickandelm.com. Today's guest is Dr. Alan Keister. Alan is an Amarillo native and an internal medicine specialist, but most people around here probably know him as the founder of Heal the City an Amarillo clinic that provides health care for thousands of uninsured and underserved patients every year. Hill the City operates five days a week. It's got a 20,000-square-foot medical facility in the San Jacinto neighborhood. And I've known Dr. Keister for a long time and figured this was a good moment to give him a chance to share the Hill the City origin story and talk about why he decided to build his medical career here in Amarillo. So here's Alan Keister. Alan Keister, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. It's great to be here. I'm honored to be a guest. Well, I'm honored to have you here. I, I know we've we've talked about doing this for a long time. Uh, I know you've listened to the show, so I appreciate that. Uh, I want to start with you the same way I start with every guest, and that's just to ask why you're here in Amarillo. So what brought you to this area? It's uh, a great question. It's uh, a bit ironic because uh, we're sitting here in your studio and literally this is the neighborhood I grew up in. Okay. Okay. So like one of my closest friends lives right next door to you growing up. So I okay. I ran around in this particular neighborhood. And, um, you know, when I, I went away to college, I went to Baylor and then to medical school and residency. And um, I met my wife while I was at Baylor. And um, I always told her that I really thought I wanted to come back and settle in Amarillo. And she said, how about Dallas? And I <laughs> said, how about Claude? And she goes, Amarillo sounds pretty good. So, good negotiation. So right? yeah, yeah. So, um, but um, I I had a really a great childhood growing up here. I always kind of dreamed that I would love to raise my family back here in a place like the place that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. It's changed, obviously. But I couldn't have imagined how good it would be to come back home and have the privilege of being able to care for the people that 
raised me. Yeah. Did you yeah. always know that you wanted to go into medicine? Was well, that... so yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, my folks were both physical therapists. And so I always kind of raised in that sort of realm of around medical things. But, you know, when I was in high school, I took that AIMS test, okay. right? The yeah. aptitude yeah. test. It tells and you what you would be good at. Exactly. And so it turned out they said, hey, Alan, you're too extroverted. You won't be able to study. And um, but you're really analytical, and I think you would make a really good engineer. Okay, hmm. and so I'm thinking engineer, extrovert, not really understanding that combination. But so I went to Baylor first semester. I did this intro to engineering class, and we had to build a bridge. Okay, okay. so yeah, like and it had popsicle to, sticks. Yeah, or yeah, something yeah. Like basically, that, basically, and you had to like hold. You know, it had to hold a weight. Okay, right, and. Suffice it to say, the bridge broke, the grade I still passed, but it was clear that that was not the place that I really felt at home. And honestly, I got back into um, sort of science classes. I came back home that first summer after my first year and spent a year interning over at the old St. Anthony's Hospital. Um, Got to be kind of a, you know, surgical kind of tech and help out some things around the operating room and really just got to feel like, you know, get, get, uh, experience with other physicians and shadow some people. And that's what I always knew I was kind of wired for. Mm -hmm. It was just a matter of, I needed to go, okay, maybe the AIMS test isn't right. And maybe I need to go with sort of where, um, you know, I feel like I'm being called to. And that really kind of set, you know, off the sort of next steps. And so, Went through the whole, you know, process of, you know, the chaos of trying to get into medical school. Right. And, um, and, and in the process, um, you know, while I was there at Baylor, met um, my wife. And so and the kind of journey starts there. And then we lived in Dallas for four years and we loved it. Um, we got married between my third and fourth year of medical school. And so it was the worst. Yeah. <laughs> Cause like you're chaotically trying to figure out where you're going to spend the next years of your mm-hmm. life, trying to go off to go to a residency. And also you're, you're trying to, you know, stay on top of your game. She was also in physical therapy school at the same time. So nobody in her program had ever gotten between, gotten married between the first and second year. They'd said, you just don't do that, which of course is what we did. We got married between her first and second year. So it was one of those fun, chaotic times, but it was really, really great. And then we moved and we lived in um, Nashville. I did my residency okay. out at Vanderbilt for four years and had just a great time out there. But my wife loved it out there. And I tried to explain to her, I loved it. But man, there are so many trees and hills out here. I like need my wide open spaces. I yeah. need to be able to see the sun rise yeah. and the sun set. That can be claustrophobic it, it for is, people it is. who grew up here. If you're in West Texas, yeah. And so she didn't understand that. And it took her a little while to get used to Amarillo. But um, now she's like, can't imagine living really anywhere else. It's been really cool to watch her transition to kind of a West Texas okay. girl as well. Tell me about your decision to focus on family medicine. Because mm-hmm. I know that's that's the thing that every medical student, right. you know, you could be a cardiologist. Yeah. You could, yeah. How did you figure out that that's what you wanted to do? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so part of it was, you know, when you get through with um, your residency, and I did mine in, in internal medicine. And so the, 
the real kind of picture was you could go on and do more training. Mm -hmm. So you could get a, um, a fellowship in cardiology or gastroenterology or something like that. You know, the reality of it for me is I'd been training for a long time mm -hmm. and I was kind of ready to get going. But I also found that what I really liked um, was getting the, the big picture on patients and just that um, relationship that I got to develop over a long period of time with people. And so I, I felt like I was sort of wired for that, having kind of a broad sort of knowledge base, but also just a very relational kind of longitudinal kind okay. of uh, experience with patients. And that's really what I desired. I mean, I had, you know, when I grew up, um, I had a pediatrician that kind of walked me through from the time I was, you know, a child until even up until I went to medical school. Um, and kind of one of the cool things is you come back home. So I had the privilege of, of taking care of the pediatrician that took care of me. Okay. Um, honestly, I had the privilege of taking care of the, the OBGYN that delivered me. In fact, wow. it was pretty cool. Dr. Loki said to me, he said, um, I brought you into this world and you're going to take me out. <laughs> and, and I did have the privilege of getting to care for him, you know, through that uh, sort of time of, and season of his life. So something really um, special about that. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of opportunity to come back and invest in people that have invested in you. It feels like something that's possible in Amarillo. Right, right. But maybe not had you been in Nashville right, or Dallas or other places right, like that. Right, Well, it's funny, too, because I had, a, uh, I had a physician out in Nashville who wanted to leave me his practice. It was a very, very um, famous sort of generalist cardiologist kind of guy out there in Nashville. And um, he actually had the, he'd been General Patton's physician in World War II. Oh, wow. Okay, okay. So like he was kind of, and he was renowned through Middle Tennessee. And so he calls me into his office. This is at the end of my sort of chief resident year. And he says, hey, Alan, I want to talk to you about something. And I said, okay, sure, Dr. Grossman, what? And he said, um, I'm going to retire this year. And I want you to take over my practice. And my eyes get real big. And I go, well, I'm moving back to Amarillo, Texas. <laughs> and, and he looked at me and he goes, like, where the heck is Amarillo? You know, and so the irony of it is there was an opportunity to stay there, but it wouldn't have been this opportunity. Yeah. And I think that's the, the interesting thing is, and, and I think about this from a lot of my friends that grew up here as well, they all swore uh, we're going to go away, but they all sort of trickle back here. Like this is a place that calls people back home. Okay. For sure. Tell me a little bit about how your practice has grown. Um, I know, you know, it, it has grown. Uh, <laughs> right. And I know you, you and your partners have recently broken ground on a new standalone right. sort of building. So tell me, like, give me the scope of, sure. of what's sure. happened. Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting season um, for sure. So when I moved back, I had the privilege of, um, taken over a practice of a, a really incredible internal medicine doctor, Dr. Steve Urban. Mm -hmm. And so he had left to go to Texas Tech, and he'd left me about half of his practice for me to really start. So from day one, I was really blessed to just be busy and to have people that were coming to see me. So I never sat around going, I wonder yeah. if somebody's going to come today. They always came. But we were a small group of internal medicine doctors, just four of us in internal medicine associates for 
um, the first about six years of our practice. And then in 2006, we merged with a group called Amarillo Medical Specialists, which is a group now north of 20 plus um, physicians. It's got about uh, 10 or 11 uh, primary care internal medicine docs. And then it's got, um, you know, 10 or 10 or 15 subspecialists in it. Okay. So we, we've bit by bit grown. Um, and so that has been a really um, kind of interesting process. So we've been in a building there just north of Northwest Texas Hospital. And suffice it to say, as Amarillo's grown, as we've grown as a practice, we have um, outgrown that space and probably outgrew that space a long time ago. Okay. But we um, have really tried to be thoughtful about how we're going about, you know, where we move, what's the next play like that. And so this idea of building a building, we did a lot of research. We actually went down and looked at some um, practices down in Dallas that were sort of building buildings out in a more maybe efficient way of utilizing space and giving patients better experiences. So less of spending all their time in a waiting room and more of sort of self-rooming patients, getting them back and having more of a um, experience where they're sort of at the center out of it, not at the mercy of what this is the way we've always done. Got it, yeah. So it's going to be a change in the way that we've done things, but we're excited to see that um, we think we're bringing something that's going to be next level care for our patients and um, and really sort of engages them in a way that honors um, sort of their choices and hopefully honors their time in more efficient ways yeah. as we do every, that. Every patient loves that. Right, right, right. We try. We don't always do it. But but honestly, they're not sitting in a waiting room with somebody coughing next to them yeah. all day, you know, that they're actually given um, dignity in the way that they receive that care and they're able to to have the privacy of, of getting to a room without having to talk about their medical illnesses with 50 other people. Now, some people enjoy that. Some people that. like that. They, some people they like that. That's that, right. right. That's right. That's right. Um, so You've been at this long enough right. uh, in the primary care world yeah. to see a lot of stuff change. I mean, I right. know there's a lot of frustrations sure. from your end, just like there are frustrations from sure. the patient side. Sure. I wonder if you could talk about just how what you do has changed mm-hmm. you know, over the past 20 or so years yeah, that you've been For sure. Here. So, well, it's interesting. I think about when I came. Uh, to Amarillo in 2000, um, we had these things called paper charts, right? Mm -hmm. And we actually did this thing. Yeah. And you did this thing where you held the dictaphone up and you dictated and somebody, you know, actually topped up your note and then they put it on a chart. And so honestly, as we merged into Emerald Medical Specialist, it was right at the beginning when people were starting to use these things called electronic medical records. Okay. And so, you know, the, the interesting thing was when I trained at Vanderbilt, they actually had an electronic medical record. So that was way cutting edge back then. Now it's sort of standard, like you have to have an electronic medical record. And what we found was we moved from this idea where we were communicating what was going on with the patient through a um, dictated note to we're now becoming sort of high level data entry people that are communicating these certain things so that um, we can communicate to an insurance company what we've done to get proper billing rather than being able to communicate your story about what's really going on with you. So I think one of the the hardest parts that has happened is as the 
the electronic medical record has sort of become more in between the patient and the physician, what you find is the physician's spending more time looking down here rather than doing this, looking in the eye. And so one of the things that has been interesting about that is that physicians have sort of had to go with that because that's there hasn't been another way. So it's interesting with the movements towards AI and things mm-hmm. that are going to potentially change the way that we do that, that even this conversation yeah. could happen and be recorded where I can have a face-to-face interaction. AI is already transcribing right, right, 100%. audio yeah, 100%. You know, way better than even it did a year Absolutely. Or so ago. Absolutely. So I think there's kind of this, there's been this period where we've spent a lot of time entering data into mm-hmm. a computer. And um, I think it's taken away some of this sort of sacred time that you have right. face-to-face with a patient. And for me... That actually is what I love the most about what I do is that um, when I'm in a room with a patient, I have conversations with people that they wouldn't have with anybody else, maybe not even with like their pastor or their priest. Yeah. And so it's a it's a very special sort of interaction that I have the privilege of being in that space with them. And so recognizing this, mm-hmm. you know, typing on that computer just is it's it's a a barrier to to real connection at times. And I, so, I think some patients are probably just more interested in being heard than right. even in the solution to the right. problem. They just want somebody to tell them they're okay yeah. or say, we're going to fix right. this or whatever. Right, right. Or I don't know what it is, but I can tell you it's not this and this, and I can assure you we're going to keep working until right. we figure it out. And, um, you know, for, for me, that piece of it is what keeps me coming back. Like, okay. that's what I love. And then... To think about longitudinal relationships, like imagine that that's my second grade teacher that I'm having that conversation yeah. with, because that is the that that's who I take care of, and that to me is the beauty of being able to practice medicine in Amarillo is that I, there's these long relationships that I have with people and getting to help them navigate life as they go through whether it's illness and life and even you know as you're helping them navigate as they're proceeding towards, you know, dying and, yeah. uh, and, and honoring their wishes and giving them the dignity of, um, you know, care that they deserve. And so that's been a gratifying part of what I get to do. So a lot of people locally know you because you're their physician um, or they know somebody for whom you're their f- physician, but a lot of people will know your name as the founder of Heal the City. Right. And I know Heal the City has been mentioned on my podcast a lot of different mm-hmm. times uh, by people who appreciate its work. Tell me a little bit about kind of how that happened. Tell me, give me the origin story for those sure. who haven't heard sure. it of Heal the City. Sure. Well, it is kind of a, a crazy story. And um, again, I would say I have to give credit to one of my good physician friends, um, Dr. Nielsen, who used to be here, um, used to be the chief medical officer of the hospital. And one of the things that he convinced me to do while my children were still young was he convinced me to turn over my inpatient hospital care to hospitalists. Okay. Now, why that is important is that my my pattern, my schedule used to be that I would go to the hospital, round on people before I went in to see people in the office. And then on the way home, I would round on them on right. the way out. And that's so, you <clears throat> visiting your patients who yeah. are in the hospital recovering Checking from surgeries. Checking on them, writing notes, stuff. doing those kind of things. But just 
relational, but mm-hmm. it was something that I was just how I'd practiced, right? And, That's how a lot of doctors. Right, right, right. And so turning it over to a hospitalist was a was a little bit of a, you know, having to learn how to release that a okay. little bit. But it also did this thing that it gave me a little more time that I didn't have. So I had the opportunity to take kids to school and see them in the mornings before, you know, rather than me headed off to the hospital before they were awake. But one of the things that happened, I want to say about 2010, I started traveling down to Central America doing medical mission trips. And um, sort of how that played out is I um, used to get this journal called the Christian Medical Dental Association Journal, and it challenged me not just to tithe my money, but Mm -hmm. to consider tithing my time. So go down to Central America, I get on the website, I say, oh, this looks like kind of a cool place to go do a medical mission trip. It's um, it's in April, that works for me. This first trip was to Nicaragua, and I looked on there and I say, well, you know, I know enough Spanish to be dangerous. Mm-hmm. And these two guys that are leading the trip, I looked at their kind of resumes and I said, you know what, if something goes down down there, they could get me out. That was kind of the, you know, That's it was real, criteria. It was real criteria. Needed. It was real scientific, you know. And honestly, when I went down on that trip and literally it kind of transformed me. Like people would come back, I'd tell them the story and they're like, your face, man, it like lights up when you hmm. talk about what happened down there. And for whatever reason, it was one of those seasons where I had eyes to really just see poverty in a different way, maybe more out there in front of me than I'd ever seen it. And saw these people who just desperately needed care. And once they received even just a little bit, there was so much gratitude that Mm -hmm. came forward. So the next year I took a friend, the next year I took 10. And for about 10 years, I was leading, you know, about 30 to 40 folks on these trips. Okay. And at one point in that sort of season, I really thought that maybe I was supposed to be a full-time missionary down there. You were becoming the guy that they I would was. depend on and, and, and stuff and, goes and they down, would. right? Right, right. And <laughs> there are a hundred tales I could tell you about the thing. I could write a book about that. But during that season, I, um, as I was starting to think about it, and my family had been down there enough that they were like, yeah, this is kind of cool, Dad, but no, we don't want to live in a third world country. And so um, started having uh, lunch with a buddy of mine, and we started just talking about what we were uniquely equipped to do. Not just what we could do better than others, but like what we were uniquely equipped to do. And um, so my friend, he's actually in country right now, but he's a full-time missionary in Taiwan. Okay. And uh, and my deal sort of um, started out as just trying to figure out what it might look like. So um, interesting conversation happened one day when I met Dyron Howell um, from Snack Pack. Dyron and I were having a conversation about maybe what what it would look like to do a free clinic in Amarillo. And how do you even start that, right? So that year, my family decided we would sponsor a school for Snack Pack. That is kind of our family okay. Christmas gift. So we sponsored this. We sponsored a school. It turns out to be Wolfland Elementary School, which turns out is right down the street from the church we were attending at that time. So I talked to the principal there, Kelly Simpson at the time, and I said, hey, what would it look like if we did a health fair just for your school? Just simple thing, just have a health fair one Saturday morning. So we have this health fair. We just do simple stuff, blood pressure check, some blood sugar checks, some uh, cholesterol, finger prick tests. And, you know, we have a couple hundred people show up. It's a pretty good day. 
one of the ladies that shows up, she's from Afghanistan. Blood sugar is 450, wow. which is high. Yeah. And so, um, you know, we end up getting her in. I get her into the office. We get her on some medications for diabetes. But effectively, probably it was like, okay, maybe if we did the health fair and it was just for that one person to find that person. Well, the next thing I know, I'm called into um, the superintendent's office. I'm like, oh, here we go. I'm in trouble. Yes. And he's like, no, no, no. I want you to do as many of these as you can do, right? And so I'm like, okay, will you give me some direction and some guidance on where the next school that we should do it at? So um, the next one we did, health fair was like at a, it was a combined one. And um, we did it at South Georgia and Ann Landergren and South Long. There was a combination of these three schools. And I was all excited because we'd had this really successful one the time before. So we're going to do it on this Saturday morning. It's going to be at the school. It's, everything's lined up. It's great. And we had a we had a decent turnout. It wasn't awesome. And I was a little bit sad. You know, mm-hmm. I was like, well, this didn't go the way I thought. And well, it turned out we were competing with the uh, Fannin Middle School History Fair, which I didn't know. Okay. And it turns out you don't do that. Schools. You don't do that on Saturday yeah. morning. Okay. And so, so the next one we did, we did it in San Jacinto, and um, it was kind of fun because when I got there, I knew several of the folks that were working at San Jacinto at the time. So we we decided we would do it on a school night, and we would also introduce this thing called food with it. And it turns out if you do it on a school night and you do it with food, people show up. So we had like 500 people show up that night. And really, you know, it was fascinating because we'd ask them where was their last sort of healthcare experience. And the majority of them either hadn't had one or maybe they'd gone to um, the emergency room. But a lot of them just didn't have, they just didn't have access to care. So I thought, this is great. This is pretty successful. We'll see what comes next. Literally the next day, Um, I get a call and um, I'm offered a building to do my free clinic in. And I said, what free clinic? And he goes, well, you know, the one you're going to put in this neighborhood. And, and so I'm like, okay. So I start doing a little, you know, research and I, I try, I gathered up some folks from um, San Jacinto, some people that were sort of leaders in the school and the community. And I started to just kind of, doing a little town hall meeting, like, what if we were to do something like this? And again, my model was what I'd been doing in Central America. So right. understand, like, it was going to be a one-day-a-week clinic, just like I did in Central America, and we'll kind of try and just meet urgent care needs, right? So I pitched this to these folks, and they're like, yeah, this is awesome. And then um, I go, okay, well, we're going to do it after hours. They're like, that would be great. And um, I said, well, what night are you thinking? And they said, um, and just for your reference, like the worst possible day for a primary care doctor is Monday, right? Because what happens on Monday is everybody wakes up and they're like, I didn't think I was so sick through the weekend. Yeah. And all of a sudden they feel terrible, right? So Monday you're working all these people in. So you meet with you meet with the folks from San Jacinto and they say, we'd like for you to do this Monday night after hours. And you say, oh yeah, that sounds great. That's mm-hmm. what we'll do. And so we keep moving forward in this conversation. And the next thing I say is, well, listen, we'll do it Monday night. We'll do it after hours. Um, we're going to thinking about doing it in this building over here in San Jacinto. And they said, oh, we won't go there if you do it there. And I go, why not? And they said, we don't go to that part of our neighborhood after dark. Huh. 
I said, well, that is a very good thing to know. I said, so where's a, well, where is a safe place in this neighborhood? And so they initially said the school, then we didn't, we knew the school, that wasn't going to be a good fit. And they said, well, you should talk to the generation next church. So I called up pastor Tommy. He didn't know me from Adam. And I called him and I said, I have a really crazy idea. Let's go eat lunch. And he was like, okay. And so we go have this lunch and I explained to him my idea of putting in a free clinic and he goes, let's do it. And he took me to this um, little rundown house behind their church that had uh, seen some days of, yeah. uh, you know, had some mauve carpet, had some ceiling tiles that were out. It was, it, it felt a little bit like what I worked in in Honduras. Okay. And so when I, I got in there, you could just kind of see things start to come together. And so through the generosity of some folks in the community and Baptist Community Services came alongside of us. Harrington Cancer and Health Foundation came alongside of us. And the next thing you know, on September the 8th, 2014, we're opening a one-night clinic in um, this little bitty house behind Generation Next Church. And we set it up. We put we put curtains up. We set up, you know, little beds and, and really tried to make it feel like if you were walking in, this would feel like a medical clinic. Right. Now, granted, there... There's as much privacy as you could have with a curtain. Um, but there's so many crazy parts to that, Jason. Like, literally, I called up our electronic medical record company, and I said, I, I don't have any money. I'm starting a free clinic. Would you help me? And because we're big users of that electronic medical record, they said, yeah, we'll give you 20 licenses for the cost of one. Hmm. Okay? And... Then another guy from town came alongside and said, hey, I've got I've had this contract with ASD. I have some extra laptops. Could you use those? Basically gave them a, a discounted cost and just all these little things, which are just pictures of how this community operates, as you know, just came together. And literally by day one, we're like uh, and we just did a first come, first serve. Right. Mm-hmm. Just. Everybody gets a clipboard, you line up. If you're willing to stay, we'll see you. And we worked out a deal where Texas Tech Pharmacy School was helping us. They were giving us medication. Your father-in-law came alongside yeah. of us as a pharmacist. I mean, we there were just people. And the cool thing about it was a lot of these people that were helping and were jumped in were people that had traveled with me to Central America yeah. over. So there was a team that just kind of got it. By, you know, year one, we're way outgrown at this place. I mean, you like, had people lining up yeah, around the block. Right, right. And let me just say this. They took pictures of that. And I look back and it, it makes me, I mean, it's humbling because that was never the desire that I had was to make people feel like they were standing in a line right, to right. have to do that. But I look back and what I didn't realize is I had no idea there was this kind of need right. for the for the services that it we speaks to the demand, right? For sure, and and so that was when I when I think back about that, like uh, you know, there was a little bit of oh, we're doing something good because look at this line, mm-hmm. but then we're like, this is not the way yeah. it should. Is this, that it, the dignity? Feels, that yeah, we want exactly, to. exactly, and even the dignity of being of sharing your story behind a curtain, right? Mm-hmm. And so you know, there's a, the crazy story again is we're in this you know, little bitty house on Tennessee street. And, uh, you know, I have a patient come into my private practice. How's it going? He's like, 
terrible. I go, what's wrong? He goes, well, I'm on the board of the YMCA. You know, the North Y is being bought by um, the city. The South Y is being bought by investors. I've got this YMCA sitting in the middle of San Jacinto. Who mm-hmm. in the world would want that? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, this it's is literally, literally one block. block. It's one block away. Like, I can stand on the porch of this 1,800 square foot building and see this thing. Okay. And so I go in there and I'm like, I mean, my mouth drops. And the the ironic part about that is our board had already met. They'd actually met with um, Central Church of Christ had these apartments on their campus over there. And they were going to turnkey renovate them into a full-time sort of clinic space Mm. for us and basically wasn't going to cost us hardly anything to do it. But from where we were to get there for some of those patients, it would have been like going to Africa. You know what I mean? Like it's not that far, but it is. Yeah. Well, they patients wouldn't have had transportation. Exactly. Exactly. And so we walked through this building and honestly I thought, Oh, we can do all of this in this little space. We can just fill in this pool. I interviewed all these other nonprofits mm-hmm. to go, oh, they'd be perfect partners to fill up this whole building. Like, like this is going to be great. It's a and massive building. It is. Right? It's 20, 21,000 square feet. So go from, you know, 13, 1400 square foot house to 20,000 square feet. And literally woke up one snowy morning and walked through that space and go, you know what? This space, we can use all this. And so, we literally got the building for um, just next to nothing. The community got behind a renovation of that building. And and so we were able to renovate the whole thing. And so there's now a incredible um, clinic that's in there. There's a full-time pharmacy that's in there. Um, there's a wellness space that's nicer than the gym I go to. <laughs> I mean, it's literally what what's happened in there and how our community has gotten behind that and invested in that i would have could have never dreamed how many people are you serving um that's a great question so so this year just to give you an idea we'll fill forty thousand prescriptions in that um, pharmacy we have about 700 of our patients are in our chronic care program we call that our shalom program and then we'll see anywhere from 2500 to 3000 just um individual patients in a year because we'll have people that are coming in for urgent care needs um, that don't have anywhere else to go, or they'd end up in the emergency room. And so for us, what we see is that it's an opportunity for us to try and plug them into existing resources that are there. So we have them go in order to get on our chronic care program. We have them go to the existing resources. JOY, it's a great resource. Regents Health Network, a great resource. But some of them just don't fit into the safety nets. So the Shalom Clinic's become a safety net for those safety okay. nets, if it will. And and what and the reason we call it Shalom, you know, Shalom's kind of that Hebrew word that means peace, but it also means this idea of wholeness, of wellness, of flourishing. And so the care that those patients get in there is really whole person care, meaning we really try to not just service the the physical needs, but the behavioral health needs, the spiritual needs. And all those them, impact your health. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think about this. Um, I remember sitting there one day with this patient of mine and I was asking him about his blood sugars. And he said, yeah, um, I've kind of had a hard time controlling them. And I was like, um, are you taking your insulin? And he goes, well, I, and I'm confused because I'm like, we're giving you this insulin 
you know, you, it's, it's yours for the taking. Yeah. Why, why aren't you taking your insulin? And he looked at me and he said, you know, Dr. Gooster, he said, um, if I don't know I'm going to eat, I don't take my insulin. And I was like, hmm. oh, well, that's a scenario that I hadn't really thought about. And so, you know, what I, what I find amazing is that the people that I see there are not the people necessarily that I thought would be there. And to hear people's stories, and it, and it turns out that it's, you know, one or two either bad decisions or unfortunate consequences, and pretty soon you're there. Yeah. And so what's humbling is to see the gratitude that those um, patients really have for what they receive and understanding that, that they have skin in the game, right? So we have a three-strike policy, and you can get kicked out of our chronic care program. But they have to engage in showing up for their appointments, taking their medications, showing up and going to their um, wellness um, program things. And so what we see is that they buy in. And a lot of our patients haven't experienced a lot of successes in life. Mm-hmm. So that, and a lot of them are disconnected. So one of the things that happens is when they come there, they're connected in a way. And they'll go to their wellness class and they'll go to a walking class. And all of a sudden, these disconnected people, they meet somebody else who's disconnected. Okay. And then there's community. And they're like, hey, you're going to come to the walking class. Why don't you come to the cooking class next week? And so the next thing you know, we're we're seeing these people who've been isolated get connected. And the accountability becomes organic. Absolutely. It's not the doctor telling you yeah. what to do, but it's like, yeah. friends and colleagues, yeah. other people say. Yeah, we just celebrated this really cool thing. My, one of my favorite nights of the year is we have this banquet called our Shalom Banquet. And so we celebrate our patients. And so they come and we'll have best, you know, blood pressure control, most weight drop, mm-hmm. you know, best hemoglobin A1C or diabetes control. And our patients get dressed up. They bring their families. They get a certificate, which you go, oh, that's a big deal. Well, it it is a big deal because again, they they carry themselves a little different, and they're you know you see this pride that comes out of them. And when people feel like they have dignity and respect, they behave differently. And so we've gotten to have the front row seat of watching that happen. And that to me, um, you know, health outcomes are awesome; mm-hmm. they are great. But just to see people um, sort of change the way that they sort of see the world, that has been pretty gratifying. I, I want to close this by talking or by asking you about maybe what you've learned in the process of doing this, mm-hmm. because I, I think it's significant that you have worked in this area, you know, for 20 plus years, but you've also been in a position to start a nonprofit and watch the nonprofit develop. And mm-hmm. you're in two very different worlds. Right. What have you learned about like this community uh-huh. uh, just in, in doing all the things that you're doing here? Yeah. That's that's a rich question, really. Thank you. I'll tell you this. I knew we lived in a unique place. I never dreamed the kind of um, support this community would give to something that helped serve the people of this community. Um, I talk about Panhandle people. We're different, right? Mm-hmm. We're pioneers. We're independent but there's another word that I've learned this year called interdependent. Okay. And what that means is, yeah, we all want to be independent, but we depend on one another. And that interdependence is something that I've gotten to witness of as we're as we're watching this process develop. 
So again, um, a lot of the people that are incredible supporters of the nonprofit have been um, patients in my private practice. Okay. And I'm humbled that they would see the value in supporting something that has benefits to people that potentially they wouldn't know or ever get to see. But that the way that's translated is that we've seen people um, give not just of their time, uh, not just of their of their resources, of their money, but people come and volunteer time. Like they'll come up. I, I have people that I would have never dreamed would show up and volunteer to help care for the folks that come to Hill the City. And what's gratifying about that is that it's a win-win because those patients at Hill the City are blessed by um, the volunteerism and the support that they get from the community. But the reason that so many of the folks show up to volunteer and to give back is because they get that sense of mm-hmm. a, a blessing and that there's something that um, makes them feel like what they're doing has meaning, you know? And so I think that's the unique part of Amarillo is that we may all have our differences, but deep down we really do care deeply yeah. about our neighbors. And um, we all are out here together and some have been um, blessed in different ways. And so what's gratifying and humbling about that is just to see how people are so generous and give back to others around this community. And um, again, I've had the privilege of getting to see that in ways. And and then it's not as if people are, are looking to get a pat on the back about mm-hmm. that. It's just, they know that what's happening, or at least what they perceive about what's happening at Hill the City is that lives are being changed, people are being helped. And Emerald is the kind of place that takes care of its own. Yeah, And we don't really want somebody else to tell us how to do it. So if it's something that grows organically and grows um, right here, they they like that idea. I always, people, I explain Heal the City sort of like that story about um, Krispy Kreme and Donut Stop. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right? And how Krispy Kreme came to town and everybody had a line around Krispy Kreme for a while. But then, you know, pretty soon people go, no, no, no. We're, we're local. We take yeah. care. We're donut stop. We're people. donut stop people. And so heal the city is just, you know, you could probably have a different idea that might come in, but heal the city has been um, the beneficiary of having a local appeal to it. And I will say one other thing that I, um, that we learned through this process, um, the pandemic was really interesting. The pandemic made us pivot in ways that we would have never had to do that before. So you talked about the long lines. So guess what? COVID didn't allow us to have long lines anymore. And one of the things that was really cool about that is we had to change the way we thought about how we give care to patients. So we taught them, hey, you got to call and get an appointment. We're going to be available not just on Monday nights. We're here five days a week, but you're going to have to come to appointments. But we don't have a long line out there anymore. We give people the dignity and respect they deserve by um, having them have a patient experience that's more like what you and I would want yeah, to have. like having your own right, primary care physician. Right, right. And so to me, that's been a really gratifying thing to watch how that has grown and developed. And, um, and again, another just 
blessing beyond belief is, you know, 10 years ago, I took a young man on a medical mission trip with me. He's a college kid, great, nice kid, never dreamed anything would become of that, but he got into medical school at Southwestern, went to this little school in Connecticut called Yale, <laughs> and uh, he's doing internal medicine up there. I've been chatting with him and thinking, man, he would be a great guy to have come join my private practice. And uh, you know, last July, uh, Dr. Trey Bowen called me and he goes, hey, I really feel like I'm called to be your first full-time doc at Heal the City. So we have one of the best trained doctors in our region yeah. taking care of the most marginalized and underserved folks in our community. And so just... You can't make that up to just be able to witness all these. Like I could tell you stories all day about this place and just how things have worked that I would have never, couldn't have ever imagined. And so just grateful. So thanks for letting me, I, I could talk a long time and I apologize, <laughs> but, but anyways. This episode of Hey Morello is supported by Dr. Eddie Sauer, who practices general dentistry at Shimon Dental Group. Eddie has been my dentist since I was in college. He's taken care of my kids' teeth ever since they got teeth. In fact, my son Owen goes to the dentist every time he comes home from Texas A&M between semesters. And so Dr. Sauer has been taking care of us for a long time and a lot of other people here in the city. In fact, he's a national speaker on Invisalign and uses that technology to improve his patients' smiles and positioning, including people in my own family. So learn more by following Shimon Dental on Facebook or visit shimondental.com. That's S-H-E-M-E-N. This week's episode is also brought to you by SKP Creative. SKP Creative wants to remind listeners to consider local nonprofits when planning your year-end giving. Local charities are critical to quality of life in this area. They're the backbone of this community. They meet needs of real people who live here, and they depend heavily on the donations of community members. So I think giving to local nonprofits isn't just a financial donation. It's an investment in the future of the city. Thanks to SKP Creative for this reminder, for this message, and for sponsoring Hey Amarillo. Okay, I'm back with uh, Alan Keister. Alan, this is part of the show I call Eight Straight. Eight Straight is sponsored every week by Panhandle Plains Historical Museum and Canyon. It's the largest history museum in Texas, and it's known for its educational programs, including lesson plans designed for elementary, middle school, and high school classes across multiple subjects, which are used alongside visits to the museum or just to enrich you know, your, your basic classroom lesson, uh, which is a lot of fun. You can learn more at panhandleplains.org. Okay, first question. When you think of Amarillo 10 years from now, what do you hope for? Mm. Well, I didn't get to mention this, but I will. So I'm the father of four daughters. Mm -hmm. So what I dream of Amarillo in 10 years is it's a city that is flourishing and growing that would attract my children and my grandchildren to come back here okay. and settle down. That's what I dream of Amarillo. I, I hear that often. I feel like that's one of the best ways to, to sort of think about what, what kind of Amarillo do we want to have? Right. Um, it's very selfish. You know, yeah. I want my family to live here. <laughs> what do we have to do to make that happen? And, and and it's quality of life stuff. Right. That's exactly right. Okay. Other than wind, what does this area have too much of? Uh, so I'm going to go with the healthcare theme because okay. this is important. So the last time we did a community health survey, the number one problem in this community was not diabetes or um, high blood pressure or even obesity. 
Turns out it's behavioral health. Okay. And so what I would say is we need less of behavioral health issues. The pandemic really brought out a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, and a lot of behavioral health needs that we've never, ever seen before. So one of the cool things that we are able to do at Hilda City is to address some of those with um, full-time licensed professional care. But um, the other thing is our community has really gotten behind that. Mm -hmm. We have a a Panhandle Behavioral Health Coalition that's really trying to address the behavioral health needs of our community. So I would say what we need less of is behavioral health issues. Okay. And what I would say is we are trying to address those needs as a community. When when you say behavioral health, is that primarily mental health issues or is it broader than it's that? It's broader, but it but it has a lot to do everything from depression and anxiety, mm-hmm. which a lot of people deal with, but um, alcohol, which has been something that really came out during the um, pandemic and is oftentimes a way to treat anxiety and depression. Yeah. yeah. Um, Self-medicating. Also, yeah. And we also, especially in the neighborhood that we serve, there's a lot of, you know, um, drug use. And so that's another sort of realm of, of behavioral health that all of those sort of play into it. And again, it's, it's something that our community is trying to address in many ways, but it's certainly something we could use less of. Okay. What does this area not have enough of? <laughs> I'll say a couple of things. We could always say um, water and trees, yeah. but I'm going to go with, I don't think we get enough recognition for this community because we are a unique place. And um, when I tell people we live in Amarillo, the first thing they do is, you know, they sing Amarillo by morning. Mm-hmm. But when I tell them about, you know, the fact that, you know, we're home to a minor league championship baseball team and we have an amazing a performing arts center, and we we have you know the second largest canyon right outside of Amarillo. We have you know world class educational institutions. They're like, well, I thought Amarillo don't they ride horses up mm-hmm. there? So I, I think Amarillo needs more recognition as an incredible place to live. Okay, apart from Heal the City, what's one local nonprofit you personally appreciate? Yeah. So one of our good friends uh, is Dyron Howe, and Snack Pack for Kids has been something that it was something that sort of helped to launch Heal mm-hmm. the City in some ways, but it's also blessed um, family and friends, and my children have been able to volunteer and serve there. My wife still does a lot of that, and so that's been an organization that I think has been particularly helpful to our community and thankful for Dyron and how he's led that organization okay. for sure. What's your favorite local coffee shop? Ah, uh, so many choices, but I actually, I, I'm going to have to go with Palace. I was there last night and meeting with friends. And what I love about it is great atmosphere when you go in there, all kinds of um, tribes and tongues walking through there. Yeah. And it just is a, it's a great place to connect. Okay. And great coffee. Yeah, that's true. What's your favorite local restaurant or food truck? Oh man. See, this was so hard. So, uh, you know, if I was to ask my friends who come back to Amarillo, what's the one place they want to go to? You know what it is. What is it? The it's big ta- Texan? No, it's Taco Villa. Taco Villa. People it, who have what? grown up here. Yeah, it's Taco okay. Villa. But if I was going to say local, I would just say, you know, I have friends that are in the restaurant business. I would say it'd be hard to just to determine whether it'd be Brian and 575 mm-hmm. or Tyler and Tyler's Barbecue. Okay. So those would be. And, and actually, I'm going to go with 6th Street, though. It's a Punjabi affair. Okay. That's a great choice. Mm-hmm. Not far from Heal the City. That's right. That's no, right. I, I do know a lot of people who 
grew up here. Come back to visit. And like, that's their first stop is Taco Villa. <laughs> I have to go get my bean burrito fix. And then I'll get one more before we leave. That'll tide us over until yeah. the next time. Uh, my daughter's engaged and we brought the, the her fiance to town and we, we had to explain to him, we're going to take you to Taco Villa. And he's like, really a fast food restaurant. I'm like, no, no, you. No. <laughs> and so you'll, he, you'll he, now, he now stops by Taco Villa on the way out of town to get a bean burrito. Yep. So yes. Okay. What's the most underrated thing about living in Amarillo? A hundred percent. We've talked about it all the time. It's the people. The people are the most kind, generous, selfless people who um, would do whatever it takes to care for their neighbors. And we've hmm. I've seen that over and over um, in ways that, you know, you see this day in and day out. And especially um, I get to witness it on the healthcare side of things. Um, I get to witness physicians who do selfless things yeah. for others. Um, and do selfless things for our patients that heal the city. But I also um, just get to witness it out in our community and the way that they care for one another. So 100%, it's always going to be the people of Amarillo. Okay. And I just brought this up. When was the last time you visited the Big Texan? Okay. So we were joking about this. I think our the last time I went was actually last year, last fall. We had a comedian come in to do a fundraiser for Hill the City, and mm-hmm. we took him to the Big Texan, and it was really fun. The other plug that I'd have to give is my um, son-in-law. My, uh, it's married to my oldest daughter. Actually, spent a summer working really? as a waiter at Big Texas. I so imagine that's a really interesting place it, to it, work. He has some stories. It's yeah. been it's been pretty fun to hear him uh, tell some of those tales for sure. Okay, well, that concludes the eight straight questions. I like to close by asking my guests to endorse something. So, what's one thing you would want listeners to know about or to experience? Uh, well mainly because of the community that we're in at Heal the City, I just would love to endorse the community on 6th Street. Okay. So 6th Street and San Jacinto neighborhoods doing a lot of um, revitalization, Mm -hmm. and there's always um, new interesting places that are going down on 6th Street. But, I mean, they have their standards, the 806, you know, going to get a burger at Golden Light or get, you know, Mexican food at Braceros. I mean, but there's all kinds of, of great, um, you know, just stores and things that are going on down on 6th Street. The Route 66 Festival is down there every year. And what I've really been amazed about is how the 6th Street community gets behind and supports Heal the City. Okay. And we've been blessed to be recipients of their generosity. And, um, and so it feels like a unique part of Amarillo. It's definitely the historic part. Um, but I always just like to say, if you're going to get to go someplace and experience someplace, um, 6th Street is a pretty cool spot. Yeah. It's got, there's some cool artwork going up down there. You got galleries, you got, you know, pottery, you got bakeries, you got a little bit of everything. Guys it's a on Harleys slice. eating burgers. Yeah. No, it's, it's a little slice of, you know, of Amarillo culture in one spot. Um, I had a friend come into town last week and I took him out to lunch and took him to Golden Light and he was like, wow, that was just on point. So so I would just say I think 6th Street is kind of one of those spots that I would give a little plug to. Okay, that's great. Alan Keister, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a blast. Thanks, Jason. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks again to Alan for the interview. You can find out more about Heal the City at healthecity.org. Thanks also to SKP Creative, Shimon Dental, and Panhandle Plains Historical Museum for supporting this podcast and to Angelina Marie for editing the show. 
Don't forget to head to panhandletickets.com for tickets to Hayden Pedagogue's concert this Saturday, December 23rd. And thank you for listening. Hey Amarillo exists on a weekly basis because of listeners like you and the local people who support it financially through patreon.com slash heyamarillo. Hey Amarillo's executive producers include Patrick Burns, Jason Burr, Corey Burns, Katie Linger, Wes Reeves, Josh Wood, Cindy Graham, and Barbara and Jim Witten. This has been episode 332. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.